Welcome to the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast with Valerie Francis and Leslie Watts. This show is all about getting writers writing. There's a story inside of you that's trying to get out, and even though you love this stuff, sometimes it feels like you're banging your head against the wall. Well, the StoryGrid method is like a decoder ring, and it will help you crack any story you can dream up. The hardest part is knowing where to start, but that's what we're here for. We've been where you are now, and we can help. Here on the show, we'll give you a practical approach to the StoryGrid method so that you can put it to work. If you want to crack the story code, roll up your sleeves, and let's get started. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 6 of the StoryGrid Writer's Room Podcast. My name is Leslie Watts, and I'm a StoryGrid certified editor. I help fiction and nonfiction writers craft epic stories that matter. And I'm Valerie Francis. I'm also a StoryGrid certified editor, and I'm a writer. And I specialize in stories by, for, and about women. So this week, we are studying the revolution scene from Ethan Frome by Edith Wharton. Um, this scene is part of chapter nine, not the whole chapter. And because the story is in the public domain, I'll include a link to the text in the show notes. But of course, you can also download a copy from Gutenberg.org. Now we're focusing on scenes this season because... Scenes are the basic building blocks of story. To be able to write a story that works, you must be able to write a scene that works. And we're using stories that already appear somewhere in the story grid universe this season. So the scene we're discussing today was discussed in the story grid guild. Now, of course, we'll have some new insights. So don't worry that you'll have heard it all before because the insights just keep coming, don't they, Valerie? They sure do. Okay, so Ethan Frome, it's, it is a society domestic story, and there's a secondary internal status pathetic plot, uh, as well as an obsession love story subplot. So here's a brief overview of the three-act structure. In the beginning hook, Ethan Frome falls for his wife's cousin, Maddie Silver, who is there to help Zena. But when his wife says Maddie must marry, Ethan says they can't afford to hire someone else. And Zena appears to let it go. In the middle build, over time, Ethan and Maddie grow close. But when Zena hires a girl to take Maddie's place, Ethan realizes he isn't able to challenge Zena and can't run away with Maddie. They prepare to separate. In the ending payoff, Ethan and Maddie leave for the station, but when Maddie suggests a suicide pact, Ethan agrees. They are horribly injured, and Zena ends up nursing Ethan and Maddie, who becomes as bitter and unhappy as Zena had been. Okay, so it's not an uplifting story, but <laughs> there are some good things for us to learn from, from this scene. 
So let's get into the scene type. What function does this scene serve in the story? This is the core event, which is a revolution scene. That's the core event of a society story. And the value spectrum in a society story is, it's all about power, power to imp impotence, who is empowered, who is disenfranchised. That's what a society story is all about. And if, if you think about things like uh, Ragtime, August Osage County, which is brilliant. I haven't seen it in the theater, but the film version with Meryl Streep is uh, phenomenal. Um, A Long Day's Journey and Tonight, these are big society stories. So the question here is, where does the story start and end along that value spectrum? Um, and the core need, of course, is recognition. And we're wondering whether that is attained or not. Uh, oh, and the core emotion. I forgot the core emotion. It's intrigue. That's, that's what's evoked in the reader. And I think intrigue pops up in a lot of genres, but that's a whole other discussion. We'll leave that for another day. <laughs> Okay, so then what kind of scene type is this? So if we're talking about the, the other type is the editor scene type in terms of the writer scene type, what do we have here, Valerie? I found this really interesting. This is a conversation in a sled, which was in 1911, the, the, the mode of transportation. Today we would have it as a, a conversation in a car. And immediately I thought of the scene, the opening scene from The Accidental Tourist where we have Macon and Sarah in the car. And it's, it's a very similar kind of conversation, but not, not quite. When I say it's similar, I mean that there's an elephant in the car with them that they're avoiding talking about. In the case of Ethan and Maddie, it's that they're they're leaving one another forever and they love one another, but they can't be together. So we'll, I'm sure we'll get in the, into this in a minute, but after the inciting incident in this scene, there's in, in my book anyway, I think seven or eight pages where they're avoiding talking about their separation and they're talking about all these other mundane things, superficial things. The same thing happens in the, the scene with uh, Macon and Sarah in The Accidental Taurus. They're talking about the weather for ages, and they're avoiding talking about the problems in their marriage until all of a sudden, Sarah, interestingly, it's the female who is the disenfranchised in both, because in both scenes, the man is in the driver's seat, literally and figuratively. And the woman is the less powerful of the scene. And both times it's the woman who brings in the turning point and, and completely overthrows the scene and changes the balance of power in both scenes. They become more powerful. Uh, Maddie says, oh, I know. <laughs> Let's drive the toboggan into the tree and kill ourselves. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a it's um it's not a feel good story, but there's lots of great stuff in it. In the accidental tourist, Sarah says, you know, listen, dude, I want a divorce. I, I can't I can't play this game anymore. I, I'm out of here. So they're 
they're parallel scene types, which is fascinating. A hundred years apart from one another. Cool. Right. And so that one, the scene from the accidental tourist is the inciting incident, the global inciting incident of the, of the story. And here we have the core event. So this is the culmination of everything that's happened in the story so far. And in terms of the other just quick details, how many people are in the scene, we've got two on stage, eight off stage. One of those is the most important character in the scene really, or the most important force of antagonism. Um, and, and let's talk about that actually, because the power dynamic is not actually between the two on stage characters. Ethan and Maddie, they're, they want the same things. I think they want it for different reasons, but they want the same thing. So the real other uh, force in this scene is Xena, who's Ethan's wife, and she's not on stage, but she is exerting pressure over them all the same. And it's interesting because Ethan feels compelled to follow orders, but he really wants to engage in his obsession with Maddie. So he did this, he had his little mini rebellion of I'm taking Maddie to the station. I'm not letting anyone else do it. Um, but Xena is still very much in the carriage with them or in the, Wagon. Sled. They're in a sled. sled. It's, it's wintertime. Sleigh. That's right. It's a sleigh. Right. And Xena represents society here. This is a question that we get a lot. And in one of the seasons of the Roundtable podcast, I can't remember which, I studied forces of antagonism because I was trying to get a handle on the internal, external, and societal. Like, what are these things? How do they play out? And in a lot of stories, I'm still studying it. But what I'm noticing is that in a lot of stories where we think it's a society story, we, we're tuning into that because society is an antagonist. It's not a true society story, but society is an antagonist. We saw this in Brooklyn was a great example. And there's a whole bunch of them where we saw uh, Mrs. Doubtfire was another one. And here, Ethan Frome, I think, is another one again. So Xena is the mouthpiece for what society says is acceptable, normal, expected of Ethan and of Maddie in their stations in life. Um, yeah, so, so that is something that I would just challenge uh, us all to do when we're studying a story. If we're thinking that it's society, ask ourselves, What's the value shift here? Is it power and impotence? Are we looking at these? Is there a revolution scene? Are there the elements in the society story or in the story that we would expect to see in a society story? Or is it that society is a force of antagonism? Really great distinction there, Valerie. Thank you. So when we analyze a scene, of course, we need to answer four story event questions and we identify the five commandments of storytelling. And those are all covered in detail in StoryGrid 101, which is available as a free download from the StoryGrid website. 
But Valerie, you're going to take us through the story event questions for this scene in Ethan Frome. Absolutely. So uh, the four questions, in case you haven't gotten them memorized yet, <laughs> are, here's question one. Uh, what are the characters literally doing? That is, what are their micro on the ground actions? And here they're traveling to the train station in the sleigh or sled and they're preparing to say goodbye. Question two, what is the essential tactic of the characters? That is, what macro behaviors are they employing that are linked to a that are linked to a universal human value? So, what's really going on here in the scene? That's what the essential action is about. And we already touched on this briefly. They're avoiding a discussion. They're delaying their departure or their separation from one another. That's what's really going on here. So their object of desire, both of them, as you said, Leslie, the, the antagonist is off stage here, off, off page. So they both have, uh, Ethan and Maddie, have the same object of desire, which is to spend as much time as possible together and to avoid their, their separation. Question three. What universal human values have changed for one or more characters in the scene? Which one of those value changes is most important and should be included in the story grid spreadsheet? All right. Ethan and Maddie, at the beginning of the scene, they have some kind of agency. Ethan, perhaps more than Maddie, given the time period and the fact that she's a woman and he's a man. But, but there is some. By the end of the scene, their, <laughs> their suicide pact has gone awry, and they don't actually die in the tobogganing accident. Is toboggan a Canadian word? I think it might be. Uh, they're sliding down the hill, and their plan is to smack into an elm tree and the two of them to die so that they can live happily ever after in the hereafter because they can't be together on earth. That's their plan. It goes awry because they do indeed hit the elm tree, but they both survive. Um, Maddie is paralyzed and Ethan has uh, a limp. Uh, so they do end up together, spoiler alert. However, they're together in impotence. They are together in illness and an injury as invalids. Ethan's not quite an invalid. I mean, he can get around and he does get around, but they both need a caregiver who is Xena. Right. And that we're going to talk about how all of that comes together in an interesting way. Um, Let's look at the five commandments of storytelling. And I'm just going to run through this really quickly because it's not the most interesting thing about the scene. Well, hang on, Leslie, before I oh. do that, I didn't actually get to question four. So people oh, are going to okay. say, hey, Sorry. what about question four? Let me just run over this quickly. <laughs> so question four, what is the story event that sums up the scenes on the ground actions, essential tactics and value change? We will enter that event in the story grid spreadsheet. Uh, Ethan and Maddie, they want to be together, as I said, but since they can't do this in life, they're going to do it in death. So that's, I talked about it, but I didn't specifically articulate that that was the story event. So 
Please continue, Leslie. <laughs> okay, great. So for the five commandments of storytelling for this scene, the inciting incident is that Ethan decides he will take Maddie to the train station to prolong his time with her. That is a causal inciting incident. Um, there are a bunch of progressive complications, but they are they're pretty subtle. There's there are several repetitions, um, and we'll kind of talk about the what's the driving force behind that in a bit the turning point progressive complication maddie suggests that they use the sled to crash into the big elm tree to die by suicide and avoid life apart and that's an action turning point or active turning point that leads to the crisis does ethan agree to attempt suicide or risk life without maddie and that i would say is a best bad choice in the climax, Ethan agrees with Maddie's plan, trusting that he can steer the sled right into the tree. But at the last minute, in the resolution, Ethan decides to ride in front so he can feel Maddie's arms about him, which makes it harder to steal. And while approaching the tree, he sees his wife's face, an image of her, and his reaction causes the sleigh to go, the sled to go little cattywampus, as one might say, and he and Maddie hit the tree, suffer severe injuries, but remain alive. Something that I think is really interesting about the, the five commandments here that worked 110 years ago, but may not necessarily work for a contemporary audience, and that is the repetition of the complications. In fact, I know it won't work for a contemporary audience because they've read it once, they don't want to read it again. There's no need for them to read it again. And this is one of the, one of the rules. You know, we, we say there's, there, are, there are some rules or heuristics, as Sean puts it, rules of thumb. Some of them are firmer than others. When it comes to progressive complications, the, the rule of thumb is that you do not repeat them. Certainly you do not repeat them exactly. So, if a character faces a situation or if there's a complication once, and for some reason in your story, that complication, that challenge, that test, that opportunity needs to come back again, bring it back in a different form. Alter it slightly. Up the stakes, up the ante. Uh, make it uh, somehow different. Make the outcome different. Something about it has to be a little different than what we saw the first time because you'll lose your audience really quickly today because modern audiences have a really short attention span because we're used to instant gratification. We're used to watching a lot of film and television and uh, reading novels that, that don't have this repetition. When we read a book that's 110 years old, we, we have a bit more patience because we understand it was a different time, a different audience, a whole different lifestyle. And people had time to sit around in the evening, the well-to-do did anyway, to sit around and read. And that's why you see more description in books that are older. And you can, you know, Edith Wharton could certainly get away with exact repetitions of complications, but that is something that I wouldn't translate into a contemporary novel. Please continue. 
Yeah. And, you know, it just occurred to me in thinking about this, that those progressive complications, they're all, I mean, progressive complications are something within, you know, from, they arise from the environment, either because another character does something or because, you know, the something actually happens in the environment. And we have a lot of that here, a lot of action from or something in the environment provokes Ethan to respond and he's a very passive character and so I think part of that is is the point of the story and again you know I absolutely agree with you that that doesn't work very well these days in most stories um, and I'm not sure this story would play today very well. If someone were to publish this novella today, would it sell? Would it, which is neither here nor there. It's about understanding what you're trying to accomplish. So I think some of that is story driven, but I think also it can, it comes with a risk. Now there is a film version that I have not seen. I haven't seen it either. It would be really interesting to see, and it's fairly recent. Well, it's in my lifetime, which I think is fairly recent. (laughs) Um, But it would be an interesting exercise to watch the movie and see if or how it has been altered for a contemporary audience. Because there's lots of meat in here. There's lots of hay to be made with the material that Wharton has created. So, yeah, that would be an interesting exercise. Yes. Okay, so, Valerie, what's special about this scene? What do you find interesting? What can we, what should we take a closer look at? Well, one of the things that I find interesting, I already mentioned, is that we've got a repeating scene type, right? This conversation in a car that worked then and it works now. Interestingly, there's something else about the scene that worked then and works now, and that's this whole notion of a suicide pact. Now, I I honestly, I don't know how prevalent this was in literature before 1911. If this was a thing that they did in in books, I, I can't say that I particularly noticed it. But then, to be honest, any books that I read before Story Grid, they almost don't count because I was reading them as a reader rather than reading them as a writer with a critical eye. So I wouldn't have noticed that kind of thing anyway. But when I was reading this scene, I just kept thinking about the scene from The Hunger Games, the the first book, where um, Katniss and Peeta agree to take the berries together so that neither one of them will win the game. Now, in that case, it ended very differently. They were calling the bluff of the, of the game maker, right? Who, who needs a winner. And Katniss knows this. She knows they need a winner. So if they both die, the game is a failure. So she kind of forces their hand so that there are two winners, because two winners is better than no winners. So what I find interesting here is that Here's one scene with two aspects of it 
that still work beautifully today for a contemporary audience. And I'm going to sound like a broken record and I really don't care. This is why we study masterworks. This is why we read widely and deeply. There's a real hesitancy among writers to reach back into the past and review these classics, these old stories. You know, and they're more work. They can be more work, absolutely. And, you know, so maybe they're not as jazzy as uh, The Hunger Games or whatever the thing is on the New York Times bestseller list for this week. But when we get stuck in our stories, when we're writing our stories and there's, a, there's an idea in our mind that we're trying to translate onto the page and we get stuck figuring out how do we translate it? Well, as we read and study masterworks from every era, what we're doing is creating like an inventory of tools in our mind so that as we get to a place in our novel, we might know what the, the problem is, but we don't know how to solve it. And we had this question just recently from, um, I think it was someone in one of the courses, summer semester courses. Um, the person knew what the problem was, but didn't know how to solve it in their novel. Well, this is where you reach into the novels that you've studied and said, ha, huh. well, Edith Wharton also had a situation where two people were trying to avoid talking about the elephant in the room. Ha, huh. how did she solve that? Can I work that into my book? Will that work in, in the 21st century? Hmm, let's see. And then you play around with it. So the more you read widely and deeply, the more tricks you'll have in your bag that you can reach into. And you'll find them in the most bizarre places. Like I'm writing a psychological thriller with vampires in it. And my narrative structure, I discovered after reading a bazillion books and coming to all these movies and searching and searching, it fell into my lap when I picked the imitation game at random for season seven of The Round Table. Blew my mind. So you'll find, you'll find inspiration in the most unlikely places. And this is why we read widely and deeply. This is why I'm going to keep banging that drum. And this is why we have stories like Ethan from 310 to Yuma, I Stand Here Ironing, The Telltale Heart. That's why we're doing these. Because the chances of you reading them on your own are slim. <laughs> there, okay. That's, I've said my piece. Moving on. <laughs> uh, what else do I have here? Oh, yes. The other thing that I find really interesting about this story is the placement of the five commandments. So this is a really common question that we get. And it's a fair question, I think. And that is, where do the five commandments go in a scene? You know, is the inciting incident always in the first paragraph? Is the turning point always, say, at 50% in the scene? How do you, like, where do they go? And the answer is, it's up to you. That's artist's choice. And where you put them will depend on how you want to structure the scene and what you need the scene to do, how you want it to look. 
that's your that's your specific uh, artistic in, uh, expression. That's that's your fingerprints on the story where you want to put put it. And it doesn't matter. We've we did. Um, I don't know which chapter it was, but it was the murder of Roger Ackroyd. It was the discovery of the dead body scene. I can't remember which chapter it was. And the resolution is really long. The five commandments come right up front in the scene, but the resolution goes on forever and a day because you're being introduced to all of the possible suspects, which is a, an Agatha Christie convention, okay? We did another chapter from, I think it was The Gates of Fire um, with uh, Stephen Pressfield and... In that case, there was this long lead-in before the inciting incident happened. And then the Five Commandments sort of were scrunched up at the end. Here you have, in my version anyway, there's three pages before the inciting incident, and then six or seven pages of progressive complications. And as we said, a lot of those repeat, so it can feel a little laborious. Then you have the turning point crisis, climax, and resolution sort of squished at the end. So where you put them is up to you. So this is a really good opportunity to have a look at what do you do between the inciting incident and the turning point? Really have a look at the progressive complications that Leslie has articulated in the show notes. Read the scene. You can get it for free from Gutenberg.org. And ask yourself, how do you feel about those repeating complications? What would you do if you were rewriting this scene? How can you change those progressive complications? How can you, in your scene, in the novel that you're working on, or the short story, whatever your work in progress is, how can you fill in the space between the inciting incident and the turning point? Where do you want to put the five commandments? How do you want to space them out? And what, what placement will work, better, will work best in the scene that you're working on? So that's, that's what I have to say about that. Oh, those are excellent points, Valerie. And really, I think thinking about what the effect those decisions have, you know, so when you look at the scene and the, you have the inciting incident and it's spread out, like it creates a more spacious, a slower pace than when you have them all kind of stuck together or even more evenly spaced. So that's a really... There's so many elements, so many things to look at. It's very exciting for a certain kind of person, right, Valerie? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, and to me, this story is really interesting. And because it presents a true cautionary tale. And we, Sean just had a recent discussion about this. So I am fresh with insight. And I looked at this scene again this morning and realized, oh, yes, this is a true cautionary tale. Now, we kind of get that, right? Because they don't succeed in the revolution. They're stuck together. It's all very negative and not very happy at the end. Ostensibly, Ethan gets what he wanted. He didn't want to be parted from Maddie. But he was so focused on what he wanted, he really missed what he needed. 
So when I looked at this story before, I thought what he really needs is to realize, to recognize that pursuing Maddie is against his moral code. And there's a point to be made there. But on rereading it for this episode, I really see it differently. And what he needs is to shed his inertia and engage with life, whatever shows up. Now, um, I realize this is a really, this is a tricky thing to talk about because he's a character who has suffered severe trauma. His circumstances are awful. And that is, that pain is all real. And I wouldn't want to go around saying people, pull yourself up by your bootstraps because I think that's a load of horse dung. But he was so he was born into a working class family. He did drop then into severe poverty in a time when it was much easier to fall down than to get back up again. He didn't have a lot of options. But to me, his resignation about life is something, honestly, that I find uh, difficult to experience. And I didn't realize what my discomfort was in reading the story. Everything he does is in reaction to his environment. He doesn't choose proactively. Maddie responds to his attention and therefore he pursues it. But he doesn't choose, oh, Maddie is the love of my life and therefore I am going to do whatever it takes. Now, if we compare this to ragtime, which is a society historical story, so it's a little bit different. We think about Cole House Walker never succumbed. He never became resigned to his circumstances. And part of that was that just isn't who he is. He's a proactive character. And while he accepts the circumstances as they are, he is a realist. He doesn't let them dictate his attitude or his choices, his actions in the world. So even though he died, he chose death over having his agency taken from him. Whereas Ethan, time and time again, just cedes his agency. And again, I want to be careful about the way I talk about this because there are people and characters who are in situations where they don't have a lot of agency. But the internal agency is what I'm talking about. That willingness to stay engaged in life, the willingness to inspire others, right? Because Cole House Walker's, his active resistance was an inspiration to others. So he didn't get what he wanted, but he got what he needed. And in the end, it's tragic, but it is a prescriptive tale because he made his death meaningful. Now, Ethan Frome, on the other hand, got what he thought he wanted, but in getting it, found out it was hollow. And in the process, as I said, he missed what he needed. So this is a really interesting comparison to me of what a true prescriptive story is and what a true cautionary story is. Now, one final note, because I have to talk about the narrative device here. It's pretty <laughs> special. And it's a great example of a story with 
a with an overt narrator. We have an unnamed narrator who really wants to get to the bottom of what's going on with Ethan Frome. How did he get to be this way? But the main part of the narrative, that narrator disappears and we get the experience of a selective omniscient narration from Frome's point of view. I think it's a great way to get the best of both worlds or both options. It, you might think it's a little bit of a cheat, but it works. And so I really want to encourage you, if you're struggling with, I want it to be covert and overt in terms of the narrative device, this is an excellent example of that and a way that it works pretty seamlessly. Leslie, I just want to pick up on something you were talking about there. You, you touched on the fact that Ethan is a passive protagonist. Again, this is something that may have worked 100 years ago. Today, it doesn't work so well. Characters are not real people. Stories are not real life. In real life, you can be passive for whatever reason. When you're writing a novel, your character, your main character has got to be active. They've got to be out there trying to get their life back on track. Because in the beginning hook, their life goes out of whack. And their whole goal is to get their life back to the way it was. And if you don't believe me, step back and observe how we're all dealing with COVID right now. COVID was a massive inciting incident that knocked our, all of our lives off kilter. It knocked us all out of homeostasis. What do we want? What is everyone constantly talking about? When things get back to normal, right? We all want to go back to the way things were in like November 2019, before this all started to pop. I Now, it might have been in the news before then. I remember hearing about it in the news in December 2019, and of course, I was busy getting ready for Christmas and it sort of would pop in and out of my consciousness. In my part of the world, it didn't have an impact on my day-to-day -day life until March 15th, beware the Ides of March. That's when everything shut down here. And since then, we're recording this now in September, since then, everyone is talking about when things get back to normal. How much longer will it be before things go back to normal? Because that's what we all want, right? So the people who are sitting back passively waiting for uh, life to return back to normal so they can open up their businesses again, they're going to be out of business. The people who are actively stepping up and saying, okay, I've got to change the way I do business, you know, so they're the protagonist of their life. They're being proactive rather than reactive. They're, being, they're taking action rather than being passive. Those are the people that we're going to start hearing about. Those are the people who are going to go through this hero's journey and end up living a prescriptive tale. There are Ethan Fromes who are sitting back living, going through a cautionary tale right now, who at the end of this will come out and say, wait a minute, how, what happened? <laughs> How did I get here? So, so, so it's really important in a story for your character, certainly a contemporary story, for your character to be proactive and to be taking 
action to get his or her life back to the way it was before the inciting incident in the beginning hook, only to come to realize in the all is lost moment in the middle bill that that life before the inciting incident is gone, never coming back. We've got to move forward. We've got to change internally so that we can go to a new normal. Here, here. And of course, that doesn't, you can be active at home. So please, you know, of course, observe the local restrictions and, and be safe out there. But, <laughs> but yes. And, you know, that reminds me of, we've drawn some parallels to the accidental tourist. He starts out very passive. And it's not like he's, you know, he's not setting the world on fire by the end, but he does become more proactive. And if you want to have a passive character, perhaps you need to have a cautionary tale these days. I don't want to say have to, but certainly something to consider. Well, the thing is, if your character, if your protagonist is just following along and things are all these coincidences keep coming that that happen into their life. It gets really boring. It becomes a boring read because it's coincidence after coincidence after coincidence. There's got to be some causal things in there. There's got to be some active turning points. You, you want to mix it up to keep your reader engaged and to keep the story exciting. Yes. Okay. So to wind up the show, we want to touch on a key takeaway from this scene. So Valerie, what do you have for us today? Well, like I said earlier, my key takeaway is read widely and deeply because you never know where inspiration is going to come from. This one scene has inspired, well, I don't know if this particular scene has inspired, but things that are in this scene are repeating in two contemporary bestsellers, The Accidental Tourist and The Hunger Games. I mean, you know, and it's 110 years old. So Edith Wharton was there before us. Sean calls it, what did he call it? Um, the ancestral internet. <laughs> so we can reach back to the master storytellers that have come before us, who have already faced these narrative challenges and these literary challenges see how they dealt with it, go back and grab their ideas and bring them forward and freshen them up for today and shape them and make them specific to the story that you're telling now. Yeah, and I'm going to piggyback on that just a little bit and talk about how comparing core events from different stories within the same genre is an extremely useful exercise. When you see them side by side, you can see the decisions that the writer has made. How are they accomplishing what they need to accomplish to satisfy the readers of the genre? And so you might look at why, why might these two writers have chosen to do this differently? And studying these choices will help us make better choices in our own stories. And as I think about this, not just core events, but scene types. So look at the accidental tourists, inciting incident, and the, you know, the conversation in the car there. And look at this conversation in the sleigh, which is the same but different. 
And when we look at those, again, we figure out how to make better decisions. And like Valerie said earlier, we have this big bank of excellent examples and ideas that we can refresh in our own stories. And that wraps it up for this week. Remember, if you want to become a better writer, you've got to write and you've got to read. Why not challenge yourself this week to take one of the ideas we talked about in the episode and use it in your work. To support the show, leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. And if you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe to the channel. If you want to see how we put story theory into practice, subscribe to the UnPodcast at ValerieFrancis.ca slash Inner Circle or Writership.com. For show notes, blog posts, and information on the StoryGrid courses and guild, visit StoryGrid.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>